Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. Joining me on Thursdays, as he always does, my partner in crime, Dwayne Gentilissimo Patterson of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Joining me live from Hugh Hewitt Studios in the undisclosed location uh, the morning after <laughs> the Senate found the Senate Democrats walked into a box canyon and basically opened up a circular firing squad and immolated themselves. Dwayne, um, I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen anything as politically stupid as what happened yesterday, but I, I have to tell you on the politically stupidometer, this thing I think really does hit 10, maybe even 11. Uh, yeah, you know, to, to quote um, Spinal Tap, you know, we, we dialed this all the way up to 11. Uh, good to have you here in the Batcave. Um, we uh, spent virtually all day today on Hugh's show, um, depending on whenever this is uh, playing in your eardrums. Uh, on Thursday's Hugh Hewitt show, I think we played the cut of what a minor incursion was about a thousand times. Um, it was it was just a remarkable day. It was a remarkable day. What happened in the Senate last night? Um, went to bed knowing that at least for a while the republic is preserved. Um, we are not going to live in a in a one party uh, ruled uh, uh, you know majoritarian state. It's it was it was remarkable uh, the the precipice uh, to which this country was was on last night. And, and um, thank God, God the Democrats, Democrats didn't have the common sense God gave a goose and walked themselves into the box canyon they did. You know, Punchbowl this morning asked a great question. I, I, you know, this is Jake Sherman. Uh, Jake I think Sherman, good, good, good guy. Yeah, he's on every Monday, good, good friend of ours. Yes. Right. And he says, I still can't figure out quite what the, <laughs> what the idea was here. Uh, they, they were supposedly trying to highlight Republican obstructionism. Instead, what they what they ended up highlighting was a was an internal feud within the Democratic uh, the Democratic coalition, and about an issue about an issue that maybe one percent of the country actually cares about. That that's even on their top thirty. Yes, yes. I mean, the, the, <laughs> I I don't get any of this. None of it makes sense at all, except as an exercise in um, base. Uh, you know, this is the, this is the the uh, the the explanation that's been given on social media. Well, they're trying to energize the base, and I would argue, Dwayne, that this is this is the difference between tactics and strategy. Um, tactics would be do something to exercise the base. Strategy would be. Is there something that we can deliver to the base to make them excited to be energized in the first place? And this gets back to what the what the uh, voting rights activists said when Joe Biden went to Georgia. Was it I think two weeks ago or one week ago, um, a little over a week ago, it where was on the tenth uh, it was ten days ago. Yeah, yeah, it was ten days ago, and they said, you know, we're not we're not going to fall for this again. You guys are basically wasting our time. And this isn't going to pass, and we're not going to we're not going to provide you uh, with the uh, with the with the photo op, if you will, because that's all this is going to turn out to be. And they were right. I mean, they were right to do that. Um, uh, they were exact. I mean, I don't agree with their position on this, but the idea that this was some sort of uh, legitimate uh, effort to pass that bill is ridiculous. And so. The difference between tactics and strategy here is tactics say we can do this and make people really PO'd and, and get them excited. 
strategy is, okay, what happens when it fails? <laughs> what are, how are they going to feel when it fails? And, and so from where I'm standing, and this is the most generous way I can cast this, I think, is this is all tactics, no strategy. Yes, this, this, this is this is the equivalent of being in the water as the boat is now, um, you know, about ready to submerge and everybody's looking for the floating door. Uh, look, I talked to Jim Talent, former, you know, uh, wait, 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 I, I, I got to stop you right there because I think I think <laughs> I think that I have to quote I have to quote Rose from from Titanic. I'll never let go, Jack. I'll never let go. Which <laughs> That's the, and, Biden and Schumer saying, I'll never let go, Jack. I'll never let go. Oh, wait, that, I let that, go. That's, what, that, that's, that's what's going on, right? That's what's going on. Um, hey, hey, Rose, why don't you scoot your fat ass over and let and let Jack on the door a little bit, you know? Um, look, here's 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 what here's what's going on. Uh, I talked to Jim Talent, former senator from uh missouri and, and uh, a good, good friend of ours is on uh, every week you know he was looking at this and he says that the democrats are in a panic because they don't think their base is motivated enough and that's all this is you can trace it back to the january 6th debacle of a speech that the president and vice president gave which was nothing more than a, a, a it was a, it was a campaign speech it was a midterm campaign speech wrapped up in whatever they tried to wrap it up in you can then follow it through to the speech in atlanta which was another partisan uh hyper-partisan speech right um they're trying to jazz their base because they don't think their base is is juiced up enough and they know the republicans base is so here's the problem with that logic though here's the problem with that strategy uh you can only juice them up so much for so long and what worked for them in 2020 wasn't just juicing up their own side they had donald trump to juice up their side it wasn't just democrats that voted for joe biden in 2020 it was independents that had previously voted for trump it is suburban moms it is a, a whole cross-section of people that, that got tired of the mean tweets that got uh, really turned off by the first uh, debate that donald trump uh, had with uh, Joe Biden. There's lots of things that took place that drove some votes that wouldn't have gone Democrat, that temporarily went Democrat just because they were turned off by Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump is not there in the 2022 midterm elections, no matter how hard the Democrats are going to try and make this a referendum on Trump, because it's the last known strategy that worked. Uh, what, what, what they're, what they're, what they're gambling on is they can juice up their base to get the same turnout they got in 2020. Donald Trump's not going to deliver that for him this time. It's, it's not going to work. Well, yeah. I mean, I want to get to the whole question of election legitimacy too, because that came up in the presser yesterday. This is part of what was going on in the Senate yeah, yeah. yesterday. How come, how come Twitter hasn't deplatformed uh, Joe Biden today? Or Kamala Harris. For that matter or kamala harris for that matter yes. as as we speak by the way i should point this out as we speak um let me see if i can find this because um uh there there was actually a um a response now from the white house on on this saying no 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 um uh, this is from jen saki this is from circleback circleback says 
Let's be clear, POTUS was not casting doubt on the legitimacy of the 2022 election. He was making the opposite point. In 2020, record numbers of voters turned out in the not face of the once, pandemic. But, but twice, twice he did that, that let in me, that press conference. Yeah, let me quote. Let me just quote. I mean, I've got the quote right here. Actually, you probably have the clip, Dwayne. Do you have the clip, Pandy? We I, can just play the clip. I, I, I do. I do, I do have, have the clip. clip. Um, here, is, uh, here is one of the clips. It would be cut number 11, which is right here. Speaking of voting rights legislation, if this isn't passed, do you still believe the upcoming election will be fairly conducted and its results will be legitimate? Well, it all depends on uh, whether or not we're able to make the case to the American people that some of this is being set up to try to alter the outcome of the election. And it's one thing, look, maybe I'm just being uh, too much of an optimist. Remember how we thought not that many people were going to show up to vote in the middle of a pandemic? I mean, the highest voter turnout in the history of the United States. So you see where he's going with this, right? Right. Yeah, but, but but let's get to the Wegman one because the Wegman one is even clearer. I mean, it's it it directly contradicts the spin that Saki is putting out here. I don't know if you've got the Wegman. I can I can just read off the transcript if you if you don't have the Wegman one. Uh, this is towards the end of the press conference. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, think I have that one. It is cut three seventy six. It's it's cut four hundred and seventy five. Right. Um, exactly. Asked whether or not you believed that we would have free and fair elections in twenty twenty two if some of these state legislatures reformed their voting protocols. You said that it depends. Uh, do you do you think that? they would in any way be illegitimate oh yeah i think it easy to be, be illegitimate imagine imagine if in fact trump has succeeded in convincing pence to not count the votes imagine if in regards to 2022 sir the oh, 25 too i mean imagine if those uh, attempts to say that uh, the count was not legit you have, you have to recount it, and we're not going to count. We're going to discard the following votes. I mean, sure. It, 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 I'm not saying it's going to be legit. It's the increase in the prospect of being illegitimate is a direct proportion of us not being able to get these these reforms passed. Um, Ed Morrissey, that sounds pretty uh, illegitimate to me. What yeah. he's saying there. Yeah. And so let's get back to Jen Psaki being clear, which is again, this is just coming out as we're recording this. Right? The POTUS was not casting doubt on the legitimacy of the 2022 election, despite the fact that you can hear him explicitly saying that the 2022 election might not be legit if the Senate doesn't pass this bill. The, the I mean, fact that Jen Psaki is speaking out today to explain what the president was clear about is evidence that he wasn't clear. If the president was clear, you would not be hearing Jen Psaki today. Right. So um, did you hear Kamala Harris this morning, Dwayne? I did, I did not, not hear Kamala Harris. Harris. Well, if you go over to our, our good friends Twitchy uh, and take a look, there's a, uh, there's a clip of uh, Savannah Guthrie putting the question to Kamala Harris this morning. Is, will the 2022 election be legitimate now that the Senate has not been able to pass this bill? And uh, Kamala Harris does her uh, usual... Um, I don't know if you can grab that clip or not, but it's uh, it, it's certainly worth a certainly worth a watch. 
Uh, I will uh, I will go look for that one, but uh, yeah, that that sounds like typical Camilla. Uh, you know, the humming, a humming, a humming a bit. Um, well, I mean, I, and I'll I mean I'll, I'll I'll just I'll say this. Kudos to Savannah Guthrie for pressing the for issue, the question, yeah, and, and sticking with it because because Kamala Harris immediately changed the subject uh, to. Uh, you know, to, well, you know, 55 million voters are going to have their rights infringed if we don't pass this bill. And Samantha Guthrie says, wait a minute, that's that's not the question. <laughs> the, the Senate's already failed to pass this bill. Are you now saying that the 2022 midterm elections will be illegitimate? Um, after Guthrie described that claim from um, Biden yesterday as astonishing. And Harris says, well, let's not conflate the issues. <laughs> It's, it's the, the same, same issue. It's the same it's issue. What they've been grinding, it's, it's what they've been grinding Donald Trump about for, for over a year. It's, it's the same issue. Right. Yeah, it's the big lie. It's big lie territory. It's, it's, it's big lie Democrat version. It's exactly the same big lie. Why Jake Tapper isn't all over the place on CNN? Because, boy, Jake Tapper didn't like the big lie when Donald Trump said it. And, boy, have we heard a lot from Jake Tapper about the big lie. Uh, where's, where's where's Jake Tapper uh, calling out the big lie from last night's press conference with the president? I'm not even sure Tapper's been on the air since that took place. I mean, he might actually have something to say about it today. And it will be interesting. You know, by the time this um, podcast drops, I think Tapper will be going on the air or or will have been on the air. And we'll see what he has to say about that. But I'm, I'm not sure that Tapper's had an opportunity yet to, to delve into that. Uh, we're going to get into Ukraine in a minute. He's certainly going to want to get into that. Um, well, but yeah, I mean, because I mean, we're you know, there's there is you know, we could spend hours if we really wanted to dissecting all the things that were wrong with this press conference. It was a horrific press conference. I, it was it was at best embarrassing uh, and humiliating to watch. It was it was painful to watch at times. At, At worst, worst he, he he is working on getting people killed. Yeah, in, in fact, I think we should probably start talking a little bit more about Ukraine because that was really the worst part of this press conference. There was a lot of bad parts of the press conference. I mean, it was all over the place in terms of uh, the strategy that uh, the legislative strategy that uh, Democrats have employed thus far. But Ukraine is the part that's going to get people killed, and and probably sooner rather than later. Um, so let's start there. On, on the press two conference. Hour long, two hour long press conference, and you can distill it down to, it's going to be forever called now the minor incursion press conference. Yeah, I was just about to, I was just about to frame it by saying that Joe Biden made a minor incursion into the East Room. Uh, <laughs> In order to meet yeah, with the it, press, I, I'm going to play. I'm going to play the actual cut. You know, you don't have to watch all all two hours. Uh, you know, God, God love you if you do, but uh, you don't have to play all two hours. This is what was boiled down to. Um, oh, by the way, by the way, by the way, let's 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 just stop for just a second and and flip back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here's Jake Tapper just retweeted Jen Psaki with the with the header more White House cleanup. On, on the issue about uh, election legitimacy. Wait, 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 wait. But what about the big lie, Jake? What about the big no, lie? I mean, no, I mean, no, I, I mean, he's pointing out that Jen Psaki's full of beans. <laughs> this might be on the SRN, you know, podcast thing. So we got to be careful. We got to be careful that he's 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 highlighting the fact that Psaki is full of beans is what I'm saying. It's a more White House cleanup. Um, well, yeah, I, I'm. I'm, Unless Jake is start talking about, uh, uh, unless he does a tweet 
you know, in the next few minutes about Joe Biden perpetrating the big lie, um, then, then you know, we, we, we have, a, we have a, a little bit of a different application of, of what the big lie rules are. Right. No, no, I, I totally agree with you on that. It really depends on what Tapper does on his show. But I'm just, since we brought him up and I saw that, I just want to be fair and, and, and say that he's actually, he actually is highlighting the, that as nonsense. All right. So getting to Ukraine, because I, I think we, we've got about 13, 14 minutes left here and Ukraine really is so going to take up most of that. So, so the, the hypothetical, what happens if Russia does go into Ukraine? Here is the brand new foreign policy of the United States of America that apparently we have never really had before. But here is the new uh, the new doctrine of Joe Biden. Oh, I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having to fight about what to do and not do etc a minor incur it depends if it was a minor incursion i have never heard i have never heard the minor incursion exception to don't invade somebody else's country i've never heard of a minor incursion i mean that to me is um I, I don't think, and I, 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 here's here's the scariest part of this. I don't think that this was even thought through. I think this was Joe Biden spitballing, you know, foreign policy and security which, policy at the at the AMBO. Which, which as you and I talked about on, on uh, my after show podcast, podcast in the universe last night, this is not a gotcha surprise question that was not in his briefing binder. Right. This was not an, an area of concern that... That, that, that the president in the White House could not foresee being asked. I mean, it, it, this, this is not like pulling, you know, what about what about big tech doing something in a in a in a hearing four weeks ago last Thursday? I could see them going, wait, what? You know, scrambling around. What were they talking about? Russia has massed, what, 100,000 troops on, on, on the border of, of Ukraine. They've conducted cyber attacks to try to soften up the, the targets inside. Right. Of, uh, of of the Donbass. I mean, they're they're actually making maneuvers. They're about ready to go in. Everybody knows they're about ready to go in. Our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, was just in country yesterday morning telling them, son, you're on your own. In Diplo speak, he was basically saying, well, you know, it's uh, it's uh, entirely as it, as it should be. It's entirely up to uh, the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians alone to provide for their own security. Well, that's just great for you to fly in here and tell us that, Sparky. Um, but look, this is not a surprise that this 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 conflict is is growing and becoming a problem. Right. And Joe Biden should not be spitballing on this. Joe Biden should have a very precise answer however he wants to nuance whatever his message or his foreign policy is he should have that answer practice and down pat knowing the question was going to come he didn't he was winging it well so when he said how, how do you think how do you, how do you think that the um countries bordering on kaliningrad feel about the idea of minor incursions you know estonia latvia lithuania poland <laughs> how do you think they feel about the idea of minor incursions we, we talked to we, we talked to Dr. Michael Oren this morning. Um, you know, former uh, Israeli Deputy Prime Minister for Diplomacy. Um, yep. You know, longtime histor uh, historian and, and scholar. And um, we asked him point blank. So, Dr. Oren, 
Um, if Hezbollah from the north did a minor incursion, or Hamas did a minor incursion from the south, um, what's, what's an acceptable minor incursion to Israel? And he was like, uh, there is none? Yeah, zero. Um, and, you know, and, and Oren caught on to this, and he's because this hadn't made it to Israeli press yet. Everybody knew there was this two hour long press conference, and it was a snooze fest, and it was embarrassing. It was an old fossil standing at, at the podium for two hours, and nobody, nobody waded through the minutiae of this to get to what this nugget was. And so we popped this, this, this quote on, and he goes, Excuse me? He says, Was Pearl Harbor a minor incursion? I mean, it's only one port. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah, that would be you know, that would be a minor you know, incursion. You know those, you know you know those two million, million um, uh, uh, illegals that have crossed the southern border over the last year or so under Joe Biden's, Biden's watch. That's, that's just a minor, minor incursion, incursion right? right? Right, right. That's another minor incursion. Yep. Um, we had Robert O'Brien on, the uh, former National Security Advisor, um, talking about what a minor incursion is. He says, look, everybody knows this was a mistake. The White House is walking it back. The hardest part is going to be communicating to Russia that Joe Biden fumbled it and that that's, that's not what our real doctrine is. How do you walk that back? How do you walk that back? He's, he went out in public and said this. I mean, I, I, I don't. I don't know. Jen Psaki tried to walk it back with a press release last night. Yep. I don't think that's enough. I, you know, you've got to think that Jake Sullivan, if he sobered up after last night, because you know he was getting hammered last night because he's like, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. So, so if, if, if Sullivan sobered up, he's trying to make those calls to – um, um, you know, yeah, but I mean, it, it wasn't just the minor incursion language either. He's he went out there no. and said he went out there and he said that NATO it. he greenlit it. Yeah, NATO is is conflicted on this. We can't agree on what a response should be if if yep. Russia yep. rolled into Ukraine. And furthermore, uh, we think Putin really at this point has to do it. He's just just because he's just because of the position that he's in. So we just kind of expect him to do it. We don't really have a response ready for it. I mean, other but than printing out a, a guilt edged invitation, please join us. Please you know, join us in Ukraine, RSVP at your convenience. I don't know how you make it any plainer that he's got free reign to do whatever he wants to do in Ukraine. It's not just but, the but, minor but, incursion language there. No, no, but but, but the minor incursion language is the focal point now. I mean, when, when, whenever you've got two hours of debris, the, 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 the key thing is is to pick out the thing that you can that you can draw a circle around. And that's what you did on special report last night. And it's going everywhere. Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, um, texted Hugh uh, this morning during the show. And um, Hugh says, hey, by the way, would you be willing to come on and talk about, uh, you know, the minor incursion? And Pompeo says, absolutely. I'd love to come on and make a minor incursion on your show. Um, well, who wouldn't you know, love to have Mike Pompeo I mean, do that on any show? I'd love to have Mike Pompeo do a minor incursion on my podcast, I, I, too. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just I'm just saying minor incursion is going to stick. It's, it's, oh, yeah. The, 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 the national security apparatus, everybody knows 
that that was that was the Titanic hitting the the, the ice moment. There's lots of bad stuff that led up to it. There's lots of bad stuff that happened afterwards, and that's that's what you can say about the entire two-hour press conference. Yeah. But there was one moment. There was one split second. There was one line where that boat actually hit the ice, and that moment was the minor incursion. minor incursion. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I can't wait until Republicans make a minor incursion in the Senate and House at the at the end of the year. I, I, I do want to kind of get back to the um, to the point that was um, uh, that came up during this press conference, which was that, you know, Joe Biden is saying, well, Mitch McConnell, his only his only agenda is to make me look bad, you know, and there's not. That's not entirely un, untrue. I mean, it's not it's not entirely untrue. Opposition parties exist to be opposition parties, after all. Um, but it also sort of overlooks the fact that Mitch McConnell worked with Biden on getting the infrastructure bill passed. He he's offering to work with them on the Electoral Count Act. And in the middle of this press conference, when he's saying, "Oh, you know, we can't do anything anymore, so we need to get rid of the filibuster," the next the very next words out of his mouth were. Well, I think we're going to break I think we're going to break the the build back better into chunks so that we can get to the stuff passed that we can get passed and then acknowledged that they probably would have to do something similar with the voting bill. And this is the Box Canyon. I know we started off talking about the Box Canyon. Just we'll we'll, we'll come back to this at the end here. Now that they now that the filibuster is alive and well, and it's not going anywhere and everybody knows it's not going anywhere. Um and now that Democrats have spent the past year trying to push through their agenda on a majoritarian basis, they are desperate, Dwayne, desperate for some legislative wins rolling into the midterm elections. So that Republicans, minor but incursions. Not just, but, but, but not just legislative wins, legislative wins that their progressive base is going to be happy with. No, I don't even think that they're, I don't think they're even worrying about that now. I mean, it's the moderates oh, 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 that, that oh, want to oh, chalk they, up some W's. The moderates are the ones that are are, oh, are sure, balking at this. The right? moderates do, but, but well, they're I'm the ones that are going to lose is... their seats. <laughs> the moderates are going are going to be the ones that are going to find they... themselves out, and so they want to chalk up some W's. The only way to do that, though, Dwayne, and this is sort of you the think point. Raphael Warnock wants to chalk up uh, some some W's at this point. Sure. Yes. No, I mean, I mean, like in like Georgia positions. In Georgia, yeah, Warnock? I think. Yes, I think Warnock is looking at the special election Warnock. and saying, "I need, I need to, I need to be able to say I got something done," and and so yes, I actually do think that he needs a W on the board, a W two on the see, board. I disagree. I, I I think I think if he doesn't get if he doesn't get some progressive stuff done, he's going to lose. No, but I mean, this was, this misses the point. There is no progressive stuff to get done anymore. They can't do it. That's right. They've right. lost on the That's filibuster, right? So right. Democrats need to put some W's on the board. The only way they're going to be able to do that now is to work with Republicans on stuff that can get done in the middle. It's the only way they can do it in order to show yes. that they can govern, right? And that's actually if progressives look past, you know, their their own noses would is actually in their interest as well because right now but, they don't but, look but, like a governing a governing group. Right, but that's but that's, that's my point is I don't think that governing from the middle and showing that they are a party that can govern that's not going to be appealing to the progressives. That's not going to make them happy. That's going to make them that's going to make them just as angry as as they are now. As they are now pursuing this agenda that had no chance of passing. You know, it's not it's 
it doesn't pacify them at all. And Joe Joe Biden yesterday kind of signaled that he's going to shift a little bit. He said, "People keep thinking that I'm Bernie Sanders. I'm not Bernie Sanders. I'm a I'm a moderate. I'm not a socialist." And um, but 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 here's my point: if they do get some wins, I'm not saying that they're going to, but if they do get some wins. They have to work with Republicans, which will basically negate everything that they've been saying <laughs> for the last several months about the filibuster. Anything that passes right. now, what is the GOP going to do? Anything that passes, they're going to say, so I guess you didn't need that filibuster. Uh, I guess you didn't need to change the filibuster after all. I guess you guys were just a bunch of hysteric um, extremists, right? <laughs> right. And, and, and you know, Ed, you know the second that Mitch McConnell is in that in in the in in the president's chair in the senate it's the second the republicans take over after the midterms the democrats who spent what 18 hours just yesterday alone um decrying on on, on how racist and evil the filibuster is and how the american experiment has failed if we if we don't get rid of the filibuster you know they are going to start issuing speeches preemptively about how robustly necessary the filibuster is to defend the republic. Absolutely. And that's the, I mean, that was the hypocrisy all along. But this is the box canyon that Chuck Schumer's uh, marched his caucus into. Dwayne, we're almost out of time now. Um, and I know that, you know, we normally go over what's going on in the in the Hugh Hewitt show and, and your after show. And I think we should still do that because people are going to download this today and tom tomorrow. So I think they're going to want to know what's coming up on tonight's after show and tomorrow's uh, and tomorrow's Hugh Hewitt show. Well, let me give a preview of what the after show really is. It's a subscriber based uh, website, Hewniverse.com. It's kind of like our equivalent to your VIP chat. Right. Basically is what it is. And uh, it's uh, kind of the world according to me. It's uh, I like to brand it as all the video clips and analysis that you would like you to do on the next show, but he probably won't get to. It's, it's all, all it's all the stuff on the cutting room floor that's that's, that's left behind that you uh, I can predict probably won't get to. Uh, that's what you get on the after show. And um, I'm I guarantee you I'm going to have the Kamala Harris cut. I'm sure there's going to be some uh, fallout and reaction to the press conference yesterday. Look, Ben Jones, um, uh, this, this is a, this, I don't know. If, do we have a minute, two minutes? What do we have left? Uh, we, we got a minute or two. We're, we're, we're just about at 30 minutes right now, but we got to, you know, we can be flexible. So go ahead. Okay. So, so one quick clip um, that you may not have heard yet. Um, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll save it. I'll, 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 I'll preview it for what is later. Van Jones, who uh, was, you know, he's very much a man of the left, um, former czar under Barack Obama. He was on with Aaron Burnett on CNN last night and uh, said that, look, Joe Biden was foggy, meandering. He looked like Reagan in the very late stages of his administration. Um, say, say what you, you want, want, but even people on the left realize that, uh, we got a real problem with this guy. We, we've got some real problems on this side of the aisle. Um, Paul Begala is not real impressed with what he's seeing right now. James Carville is not real impressed with what he's seeing right now. Uh, longtime Democrats, David Axelrod was trying to put a, a shiny face on this, but even he knows that we're in real trouble now. Um, look, the, there's going to be lots of reaction to what happened yesterday, especially 
as the um, as the shockwave of this new uh, minor incursion strategy rolls around. How do you think Taiwan feels about that? Um, Right. I mean, hell, how do you think the Aleutian Islands feel about that? I mean, Russia Russia could take a few of those. That's a minor incursion. Minor incursions! It's just a minor incursion. Oh, my stars, is that going to leave a mark? <laughs> All right. So uh, tomorrow's Hugh Hewitt show. Minor incursions there. Who's, who's, who's doing the minor incursions tomorrow? Secretary of State Mike Pompeo will make a minor incursion that? on the show. Uh, Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, he will make his weekly minor incursion uh, on the show. Uh, Sonny Bunch will be along to make a minor incursion on uh, on uh, some new movies that are out there. Um, like I said, you know, you never know what's going to be on Hugh's show, but um, um, I, my, my guess is Mike Pompeo is going to make some news. I'm just saying I think he might make some news. I think you're right. Now, normally we would uh, we would compete to see what people should do because you can watch the Hugh Hewitt Show at the Universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com. Um, and normally you and I would compete to say, you know, what, what would happen if, you, if, you, if you're if you trying to find it on the AM radio dial and can't. But I think we can both uh, agree that we, we, this we week. We both know what would happen. We both know what would happen. You would have to go to a, a, a radio station GM's office and you would have to make a minor incursion into his office, right? Exactly right. That's exactly right. We are we are on the same page this week. Dwayne Generalissimo Patterson, thanks so much for being with us on the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. We'll talk to you again next week see you guys and welcome back to the ed morrissey show joining me is one of my good friends from the entertainment uh the entertainment industry's um uh, critics corner maybe the best critic that's out there especially if you're interested in um in in commentary from a conservative point of view you don't get a lot of that in Hollywood, I can tell you that, but you do get a lot of it from Christian Toto, uh, hollywoodandtoto.com, and he is also, um, he's launching a new book, actually, we want to talk a little bit about that, he launched it, uh, uh, launched it just recently, and uh, trying to, I'm trying to make sure that I've got you on screen, you're looking good, Christian, thanks for coming thank, on. Thank you, thanks for the compliments. I, are you looking to borrow money, what's going on? <laughs> Well, it is the end of the year here. You know, we're <laughs> we're pre-taping these things. I'm I'm trying to catch up with my Christmas bills. So, you know, I, yeah. I'm a journalist, think... so there's no money here. You, you got a dry vein. <laughs> well, it's been nice talking to you, Christian. No, I'm just <laughs> Oh, well. I, you know, Christian and I, we love talking about movies. Um, and, and we'll probably get into a couple of uh, things about looking at the previous year. I haven't seen as many movies this year as I normally would like to. But, um, but... Before we get to talking about that, let's talk about your book. Tell us a little bit about your book, Virtue Bomb. Yeah, the the full title kind of sells, says the whole story. It's how Hollywood got woke and lost its soul. And, you know, I'm coming at this kind of like you. I love Hollywood. I love movies. I love TV shows. It, it makes our lives better. It's escapism. Uh, it connects us as a culture. And what I've watched over the last few years is that all of the above is being damaged by this woke mindset. And listen, you and I don't disagree with diversity. We want all the voices at the table. We want all the people who are creatively you know, powerful and strong and have great stories to tell. We want them to uh, be able to share those stories. And that hasn't always been the case in the past, but this is different. This is, uh, you know, it hurts creativity. It stifles comedic spirits. Uh, it changes the stories that could go in this direction and go in that direction. It just really kind of clamps down on storytelling. And it's dangerous, I think, for the culture. And of course, what we're seeing now is that it's spreading well into every other aspect of society. But 
I cover Hollywood. This is what I do for a living. And uh, it's important to see what's going on in the industry right now. You know, there's a couple of different, uh, I guess, trends uh, that are impacting that too. I mean, one is definitely wokeism. The other is China. And you know, I have not I've talked about this. You got both things kind of going on at the same time. To some degree, they might overlap a little bit, but they really are two separate dynamics. Uh, Hollywood has been for really quite a few years, tailoring its content, tailoring its creativity to appeal to uh, the Chinese government to allow them to compete in those in that market. And um, that actually has a that's a strategy that actually has an expiration date, as it turns out, which we discovered this year. But I mean, so you've got on one hand, you've got Hollywood tailoring to the woke um to woke community, I guess, or the woke, you know, demands of wokery, you have at the same time them kowtowing to Beijing. And the result is really a whole lot of, um, <laughs> a whole lot of comic book movies, not a lot of really original content anymore. And uh, more or less sort of didactic propaganda to some extent. Yeah, the, the China thing is interesting. It, it's it's different. It's different, and yet it kind of overlaps in a way, because a lot of these sort of uh, progressive voices in Hollywood want to make the world a better place, want to reduce bigotry and hatred, uh, want to use their power for good. I'll you know take them at their word, and yet they're kind of you know, playing footsie with China with all the human rights abuses and ignoring what's going on in that country. And then from the woke point of view, you know, we've seen even comic book movies kind of be derailed to a certain degree by this sentiment, by this sort of mindset. Uh, the Turtles that came out a few weeks ago, you know, underperformed at the box office. It was already in a diverse group of heroes, but they actually ramped up that diversity above and beyond what was there. And the story just didn't have the snap, the sort of the sizzle that we've seen from previous MCU movies. So, you know, the woke issues really do hurt what's going on. It's also, you know, once you get understand that mindset, you can predict what happens in a movie. I just watched The Kingsman, and uh, I think his name is Jaman Honsu, a terrific. Uh, oh, terrific actor. actor! Yeah, no, I yeah, yeah. I, I may have bungled his, his difficult to pronounce name. I think I got close. And as soon as I saw him on the screen, he was a servant to another character who happened to be white. And I'm thinking, oh no, they can't do that. So it turns out, of course, he was a powerful figure, a hero. But when you know the woke rules and what you can and can't get away with, it just it, it makes stories more predictable. And that's just one of many reasons why it's frustrating, because it would be OK if he was a servant to a character. There can be some other elements of that story that are interesting. And certainly there are characters who are subserving to other characters, but you can't do that now. So it's just it really hurts in so many ways. And that's just a tiny example. Yeah, Jimon Hansu, by the way, um, I, I, the two roles that I remember him most from would be Gladiator. He was mm -hmm. um, one of the gladiators in Gladiator. Um, he was also um, in uh, Constantine. I don't know how many people remember Constantine with Keanu Reeves. It's but a he, good movie. It's, it's a good movie. He was the um, actor who played the guy who was sort of like the, the, the what would you call it? The free zone, the safe zone bar. You know, it was a, um, it was a good role. And it was, uh, yeah, it's a good movie. It was an interesting movie. He's been a lot of great stuff, though. Jimon Hunsu. Yeah. If, you, if you look, if you look him up on IMDb, he's got a lot of great credits. Um, you know, and I think that what you see though is this, and the reason why it's called, you know, virtue bombs. <laughs> is the, yeah, it's it's not subtle. I mean, this it works on many levels, right? First off, it's kind of blowing up the industry. 
Um, but also, I mean, audiences aren't responding to these. Um, uh, you know, as we speak, you've got a couple of you got a couple of examples of of, of how audiences are incentivizing this. You've got uh, the new Spider-Man movie, which of course is a huge monster franchise. Anyway, it's going to get a bunch of um, it's going to sell a lot of tickets. But it doesn't really, according to according to um, Hollywood and Toto, which of course HollywoodandToto.com I follow very religiously. Um, I, it's it doesn't really have those kinds of woke elements. It doesn't really focus on that, or it really have them at all. On the other hand, you've got didactics like you know don't look up and and other things like that, which aren't doing as well at the box office. What are some uh, examples of recent bombs that? Uh, uh, that you can give us on this on this uh... well maybe the newest one is the king's man which is the third film in that series yeah. and that that whole franchise is kind of uh not very pc at times it's it's wild it's woolly it's known for its outrageous action some of its outlandish characters and plots and yet the new movie is, is a bit woke. There are certain scenes, especially in the very beginning of the movie, where kind of that sentiment plays out. Uh, in recent years, we've seen the Terminator franchise kind of go woke and basically extinguish itself. The Charlie's Angels reboot certainly uh, fits that criteria as well. It, it, it happens a lot, and it's disappointing. And, uh, it, you know, you would think that Hollywood would look at all these results and say, wow, it's, we've got a problem here. But they don't. And two more quick examples. West Side Story. I haven't seen it yet. I need to catch up with it. Yep. But the whole marketing campaign behind it was very woke. Well, this is going to fix the sort of the cultural errors of the classic film. We're not going to have English subtitles during the Spanish speaking uh, sequences because that's demeaning. What does that even mean? I mean, you know, if you don't speak Spanish, then maybe people don't. You want to understand the movie. And then even the most recent Bond film, which underperformed here and did much better overseas, we had like two years of woke marketing. Even the movie itself wasn't that woke. But the impression was, well, we can't say Bond girls. And, you know, Sean Connery's Bond was a bit of a rapist. And, and you know, the new Bond 007 is actually a black female agent. And that was true, but it really was actually integrated beautifully into the story. And so, you know, I think a lot of people said, okay, not my Bond, not my, not the Bond I grew up with. I'm going to stay home. And that's what we get. Yeah, I, I will. I will pick one quibble with you on this. Um, because it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a, a discussion between the two of us without having some sort of debate on on some minor point, even though we vastly agree <laughs> on everything else. I actually ended up watching the Elizabeth Banks version of Charlie's Angels, and I didn't have uh -oh. a problem with it. <laughs> I didn't have a problem with it, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Uh, yes, it certainly was. You know, uh, it certainly was all about girl power. But Charlie's Angels is always about girl power. I mean, mm -hmm. when Drew Barrymore was doing it, about it was sort of ridiculously cartoonish i actually yeah. thought i actually thought that anyway, if you even go back to the original tv show for mm -hmm. its time it was you know sort of a cross between tna and and, and women's lib it was a weird <laughs> cross but it was it, it had those elements all along so i wasn't put off by it at all and i actually thought it was a pretty good movie you know i i think that there's a stronger gripe with the um paul feig uh, ghostbusters remake uh, I think that just was not a very good movie. Uh, mm. I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was as awful as its critics made it out to be. It I agree. Was, I agree. Yeah, it was watchable, but nothing great. Nothing great. Um, I think Leslie Jones really is the worst part of that. Everything else is just sort of Mary Sueism, and you know, yeah. just I mean, it didn't have the charm of the original. I, 
I, but I mean, it was watchable. I could, I, I sat through it. I fell asleep. <laughs> had the mistake of uh, watching it on Thanksgiving night after I'd eaten a whole bunch of turkey. And I, I went there and because it wasn't very compelling, I kept falling asleep in the theater, which yeah. is unusual for me. I don't normally do that. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I would, I would give Elizabeth Banks and the Charlie's Angels uh, reboot a pass on it. I actually thought it was pretty good and sort of keeping in the spirit. But I mean, so many other things. The problem is, is that it's in so many other things. It that type of women's power sort of thing makes sense in a Charlie's Angels movie. Mm. You know, the rest of this stuff, it doesn't really have anything to do with the story, and they're twisting stories around, they're twisting characters around, even in franchises. To make points that, I mean, honestly, have, have nothing to do with storytelling. I, I want to give a quick example, and it's a small one, but I think it really speaks volumes. The new movie, Being the Ricardos, is out now. I think it's on yes, I saw it Prime as well. Yeah, and I enjoyed it. I had some quibbles, but I don't want to. I don't wanna do a review of it. Now you've got Aaron Sorkin as the writer director. He's one of the best screenwriters around. Even if you don't like his politics, he knows how to write a, a, a crisp line of dialogue. His banter is always excellent, and it's, it's often the case in this movie. But there's one scene where Lucille Ball is, is arguing and or talking with her writer on the show. Again, this is the 1950s. Right. Let's make sure we know what the time period is. And the writer's conversation about uh, women on TV, about their role, about uh, you know women being powerful, feels like it was read and written by someone in 2021. That is inexcusable. You've got one of the best screenwriters in Hollywood basically pandering to his audience, taking us out of the perspective of the of the period and lecturing us about how women should be more powerful on TV. This is a movie set in the 1950s. No one was thinking that. And you could you could kind of layer in those messages in ways that are organic to the story and that register without having this wildly uh, inconceivable anachronistic conversation it just pops you out of the movie again a small note doesn't ruin the film but i think this is what we see more and more even the recent was a jungle cruise with uh, dwayne johnson and emily blunt yep one of the characters comes out as gay and uh, that's okay but dwayne johnson this rugged hero is like you know what i'm cool with that we're great let's move on first of all that even the whole discussion wouldn't happen and you know sadly back in that era you know being gay was frowned upon in, in, in significant ways so everything about that was sort of conjured and make believe and not really authentic to the story. Again, I don't mind a gay character. I don't care. That's fine. It's wonderful. I'm glad that the culture has, has evolved in that way. But when you have those moments, it just, again, this is a, this, that was a story set, I think, in the early 1900s or maybe late 80s. I forget. It was, it was older times. That's what woke is. It's, 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 it's not... Um, authentic it's not genuine it has a lecture quality to it and it doesn't have fun and one of the things that's wonderful about the new spider-man movie it's all about fun fan service excitement adventure having old characters coming back it is, is a true love letter to people who enjoy that character in the franchise so um talking more about uh, virtue bombs which of course uh, your, your book you should you should actually Hold that up next time you're on the screen, just so people know what to look for. It's actually uh, behind me. Can you see it? Oh, it is. Screen? It's right there. Christian Toto, Virtue Bomb. Accidentally right just popped up there, by the way. <laughs> uh, so what's the solution here? Because this is not a new problem. I mean, it, before Woke, it was just simply, you know, political didactic. I mean, there was this whole series of films in the early days of the Iraq War 
where you know Meryl Streep was involved in him, Robert Redford was involved, maybe even in the same movie. I'm trying to, I, I know yeah, Meryl Streep, Lions for Lambs, but there was Redacted, which was I think a, a Brian De Palma absolute bomb. I mean, even on the merits of of you know technical merits of filmmaking, apparently it was terrible. Um, which is fine because I think Brian De Palma is overrated as a director. <laughs> That's just my opinion. It has nothing uh, to do with Redacted, but uh, no argument here. Yeah, there you go. So. I mean, those, those films bombed. I mean, there's millions of dollars put into these things. You would think that at some point, the investment losses would wake people up to that. And and, and I will, I will offer this as, um, as sort of a uh, support for that. There has been a tremendous growth in faith-based uh, mm. programming, uh, faith-based movie making, uh, because the, the money's there for it. Mm. And we've talked about this before. You know, it went from sort of like, you know, garage productions uh, by local churches, which were, you know, courageous in, in their way, because it's not easy to do that type of thing if you're not a professional at it, uh, to, you know, top drawer films like Risen with with excellent casts, um, you know, at, at, you know, top drawer uh, production values. I mean, that's that you see Hollywood responding. To that. Why are they not responding to the fact that the. Uh, that woke goes broke at the box office. Well, you know, you mentioned a lot of those anti-Iraq war films. We saw a lot of them and it took a while. And then Hollywood finally realized, oh gosh, we're, we're getting our clocks clean at the box office. Let's stop making them. So I think Hollywood will respond at some point. It does take some time. In a way, it's an oddly conservative industry. They, they, they're very rigid. They don't want to change. But when it comes to the woke stuff, I don't think they're there yet. I don't think they're getting the message. And if you look at, you know, the, the Bibles of Hollywood, like Variety and Hollywood Reporter, you will never hear the get woke, go broke mantra. Just the opposite. They may make defenses for movies that are very woke and, and progressive. So I, I think it may take a long time before that message sinks in. If if a Hollywood studio executive maybe dipped a toe in, you know, listened to this podcast or, you know, checked out the Daily Wire or National Review, they may get an interesting education because a lot of these outlets that, you know, especially uh, my site, you know, we want to root for Hollywood. We want to cheer on great movies. And we're critical because we because we do it from a place of love. And, you know, a lot my Virtue, Virtue Bombs book has that in it. I love Hollywood. I, I kind of share my story being a kid, you know, watching Abbott and Costello with my father and that kind of got me into loving films and this is this is like a tough love intervention like stop you're, you're doing bad things with this wokeism and we you know it's it's hurting your bottom line and you're leaving money on the table and the one bright side is that it does open up other avenues you've got these you know independent studios doing faith-based movies you've got comedians who are doing you know comedy routines that are anti-woke and not even political but just sort of fe feeding on this information and, and succeeding and thriving you got the Daily Wire that's getting into the movie business. All of a sudden, they're making you know first-rate movies that wasn't possible a couple of years ago. So, one of the hopes I have is that all these different cultural forces and and, and sort of uh, consumer forces will force Hollywood to say, maybe we need a Plan B. Maybe we should do something a little bit different. I think that will happen, but it it may not happen in 2022. That's for sure. All right. So the book is Virtue Bombs by Christian Toto. You can find out more at HollywoodandToto.com. It comes out in. Um, early January, probably by the time we put this into a podcast, it will either just be coming out or will come out shortly thereafter. Um, let's talk a little bit about the about the year in review. You know, we got to, as long as you have a few minutes, I've got a few minutes. Sure. Um, and uh, the nice thing about doing podcasts is that you can pre-record these things and uh, 
don't have to worry about whether or not somebody's on on deck, uh, as right. it were. So, um, I didn't get a chance to see a lot of movies this year. In fact, I I did a review for one, and we were kind of uh, exchanging comments about it on on Twitter. It was called uh, Bestsellers, um, and um, and so uh, I went back and took a look to say, well, how many reviews did I do this year? I think I only did like four or five reviews. Um, not a better year That's for. Yeah, I know. It's not a banner year for me. I like doing reviews and I like I like watching movies. But um I mean, how was it uh, was there anything really calling you to go to, into the theaters a bad um a bad thing to say in 21, but uh were you compelled to go watch any of these films this year, Christian? You know, I, I felt this was another disappointing year. I think it was two years ago with Joker and Jojo Rabbit, two movies that I absolutely loved and couldn't watch, couldn't wait to watch again and again. And I have to say, I've watched a lot of the Oscar bait movies this season. Uh, the Power of the Dog comes to mind, Belfast, uh, Licorice Pizza, which I found way, way overrated. I just, I don't see it. I mean, some of these films are good. They're solid, they're well-crafted, they've got great acting. Belfast, the cinematography is gorgeous. It's in black and white and it's stunning. I, rec I recommend it on that, on that alone, but for the last two years, I've really struggled to come up with a top 10 movie list. There's just not that many great movies. There's a bunch of good ones, a lot of clunky ones. I, I don't know exactly why that is. Is it me getting to be a crusty old critic who doesn't like anything? <laughs> I don't know. There have been some films that I really loved. I loved Spider-Man. That's more of a popcorn movie. I really appreciated Riders of Justice, which was a vigilante comedy with Mads Mikkelsen. That one really kind of took me by surprise. I thought it was wonderful. So I, I still feel I can be moved by a movie, and I, I appreciate that. But I don't know. I, I, I'm just underwhelmed by the product out there. I find writing my top 10 worst movies of the year list far easier and more fun, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah, there's always a lot of fun too. The stuff that you know, I, I I do I do find myself when I have to review something that I didn't like, trying to restrain myself a little bit because <laughs> some of that. I mean, let's face it. Some of the some of that is just it's so much fun to write nasty stuff about films that it's easy to overindulge yourself on that and and maybe come across as oh I don't know somewhat uh, <laughs> somewhat churlish. Um, I did find a couple of the films. You know, we, we talked about bestsellers. I know you haven't had a chance to see this. It's actually no, I haven't yet. I'm looking forward to it. It's actually a pretty good movie. I, you know, I, I was surprised because I hadn't heard anything about this. Um, not terribly surprised because again, I haven't really kept my ear to the ground on films this year. Um, but you said that it got sort of bad buzz um, pre-release. Yeah, you know, this is Michael Caine and Aubrey Plaza. Mm -hmm. I know they were pitch their PR team were pitching it hard to me. I just didn't have a chance to see it. And I read one or two reviews, which were pretty rough. And I just kind of put it out of mind until I heard you said you appreciated it. So I do, I want to, I want to circle back Saki style to that one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. You know, listen, one of the things that's interesting about movies today is that a lot of movies just legitimately fly under the radar and they deserve your time and attention. They really do. Yeah. And so you got to be a little kind of cautious. You got to kind of have a network of friends that you trust their taste, maybe a couple of critics that you enjoy. And, you know, again, I, I know your taste. I know, we don't agree on everything. <coughs> Charlie's Angels. But, you know, when, when you get that good word in on bestsellers, I'm kind of in. So, you know, and plus I love Michael Caine, anything he's in, I'm kind of halfway there already. So you have to be a bit of a discerning consumer today. And also I have to say, and I, I do this more and more and I feel a little kind of weird about it. I don't always trust fellow critics these days. I think they often have agendas that kind of trump whether the movie's good or bad. 
um, it, it's frustrating to me. And I think it, it didn't start here, but I remember when Ghostbusters, the lady Ghostbusters came out and it was given fairly positive reviews and, and people either hated it or just felt it was lukewarm at best. And I agree with that sentiment. But Richard Roper, who's a pretty august film critic said, are my fellow critics grading this on a curve? And I think he was right. Yeah. So I, I think sometimes different, you know, is is the person, is the, the director a person of color? Uh, again, I have no problem with that, but if you're starting to grade movies based on those criteria, and here's another quick example, I'm, I'm gonna write about this pretty soon on my website. Uh, American Underdog came out this year and I really loved it. It's a beautiful film about Kurt Warner. And there were two reviews that were just scathing. And it wasn't as if they were saying the acting was substandard and the story didn't move them and the screenplay was was you know predictable. It was, it's it, it's a fake kissed movie and they were so angry at that element of it, which was I thought was really delicately handled. You know, not not like God, you know, God's not dead that kind of a franchise. Right. Their, their reviews were so uh, churlish and mean. They called one of the actors in the film Adam Adam Baldwin, um, an an a hat because he was right of center. No, Hollywood was filled with movies with left of center stars. I don't single them out and say, Mark Ruffalo, who's a bleeping blah, 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 stars. Like that's wildly unprofessional, but we're right. seeing that's a bunch from critics. That's just beyond the pale and it's it's unprofessional and it, it doesn't really serve your reader. Is it a good movie? That's fine. I don't care whether you disagree with the politics of the actor involved. It's really not important. It's not, it's not relevant. Yeah, I didn't know that Adam was in it until yeah. you just mentioned it to me. I guess I should have known that. I'm, you know, kind of friends with Adam. I didn't realize that, that he was in the, now I got to make sure I see this thing pretty uh, quick. And, um, I like well, I mean, I, I, I kind of wanted to see it anyway, because I remember when Kurt Warner, when, when all this was transpiring and it was, people were saying at the time, man, you couldn't write a movie like this. I mean, the guy was bagging groceries one week and playing in the NFL the next. I mean, not quite that, but, but pretty close to it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I know that this is something that would be great, you know, get a you know cinematic treatment, but um, yeah, I didn't realize Adam was in it. So now I feel kind of bad. I haven't seen it yet. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta light a fire under my butt. Um, but uh, but look, I mean, um, I, I agree with you on this, and I think that this is part of the incentive structure that Hollywood is responding to. I mean, it's not just the people who produce the films. It's not just Steven Spielberg, although he's certainly part of this. Um, it's not just the investors in these films, it's not just the corporations, by the way, like Disney and Sony that that are incentivizing this. It's also the people who are, you know, on uh, in the second, you know, the second circle of this, the critics, the the publicists and everything else like this. I mean, you take a look at, um, you know, I'll go with Charlie's Angels. I know we're going to disagree on this <laughs> just because it's it's I'm, I'm using this because we disagree. I actually think the problem with Charlie's Angels was the marketing. And that's the reason why I got everybody so annoyed. Uh, and I also think to a certain extent that was true of the, you know, the Ghostbusters reboot by Paul Fagg. Is I agree that, with that. Yeah, I, I mean, had they just come out and said, hey, this is just another fun look at this, look at this great cast. We've got Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, you know, uh, you know, Kate McKinnon and um, Leslie Jones, which I, like I said, is a whole other story. But um, um I mean, people would have said, hey, this looks like fun. You know, why not? Let's take a look at this. Instead, the marketing is really what polarized the marketplace, it polarized the critics as well. Um, and I would say that that's probably true of Charlie's Angels, which was 
you know, really heavy on the, oh, girl power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Rather than just focus on the fact that you had a pretty good cast of characters up there. You had Patrick Stewart. And I mean, mm -hmm. I'm going to, spoiler alert, mute for the next 30 seconds if you don't want to find out about this. Turns out to be a pretty good villain. <laughs> I mean, I was a little surprised by that, actually. I didn't quite expect him to be to, be, to become the villain in this thing. Okay, no more spoilers. If you've, if you've turned off the mute function at this point, you're safe. But they don't market it that way. And so, I mean, I think that there's, you know, virtue bombs. Your, your book, I think, I don't know if you get into that all that secondary and tertiary incentive system uh, for wokery in entertainment, but I mean, it exists, it's there. It is interesting. You know, I don't know if I directly address the market, the woke marketing. I, I think there are elements of it. I have a whole chapter on Ghostbusters, so I'm sure I, I hit it to a certain degree, but you're right. And what the actors think that being woke and expressing and sort of framing their movies and projects around that sentiment they think that's a home run and no yeah. one's telling them differently. And what they realize that it's not. And what the Ghostbusters film was so fascinating because you kept saying marketing, marketing, you're right, but you're forgetting the other element here is the press. There, were, there was an article in the Washington right. Post essentially saying, you're a misogynist if you didn't like the Ghostbusters trailer. Now listen, you and I kind of agree that the movie was okay, wasn't great. Right. That trailer was awful. And that trailer was the moment in the marketing cycle where they could say, Here's a funny trailer. You're gonna laugh your your took us off, and we're gonna we're gonna change all the bad buzz into good. And instead, they sent a lousy trailer out. Yeah. It was almost laugh free, and people hated it. And then they said, "Oh, well, you're a misogynist." Well, yeah. Wait a minute. I, 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 how do you know a misogynist? Well, that's a horrible thing to say. And the trailer is not funny. And if that trailer was just a riot, that whole it would have been a complete transformation. I think the movie would have been a hit. Yep. All right. So. I want to touch one on one other thing. This gets back to bestsellers, um, and not 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 the movie itself. I, I want to talk about I want to talk about being a critic. Uh -huh. um, so I'm watching bestsellers, and I watched it with friends. We did one of those, you know, Amazon. Excuse me, one of those Amazon. Uh, uh, what do you call it? watch parties? Which works okay. Everybody's got to rent it when you do that, but that's okay. Um, and we did. We all rented it, um, and I and I enjoyed it. At the same time, this was not Casablanca. <laughs> this was this this was not you know singing in the rain. This was this was not um, that's entertainment. What it was was it was a good serviceable film based on a formula. It's a formula film, a couple of different formulas in play here, but it's done well, and you know it makes some innovations to the formula that distinguishes itself from other such formula films, and you've got great performances in it. And so you've got a good serviceable film. I'm not putting this thing up for an Oscar, you know. Mm. Um, I think it's worth a rental. I don't know that I go run out and buy the DVD, but it's certainly good. It's worth watching. How much do you think that the that the critic industry is sort of driving this idea that you either have to love something or you have to hate it? And I mean, this kind of follows in the in the Ghostbusters thing mm. that we were just talking about. Yeah, a couple of thoughts. I, I do think in our culture, in order to cut through the cultural noise, you have to be more outrageous. You have to kind of use bigger adjectives. Uh, there's a cooking channel I follow on YouTube, and every every meal is the perfect BLT, the perfect tort, you know uh, burrito. And I think maybe critics are falling a little bit in line with that, where if they're if they give a nuanced, balanced review, it's not as exciting and clickbait worthy as a more histrionic review. I think that's part of it. 
I also think critics should do a better job of basically meeting a movie on its own terms. You know, if it's a faith-based movie, maybe there's a different way to kind of approach it than a slasher film or an Oscar bait film. I, I, I think, you know, movies try to do different things and I, I think judging them all on a same platform, I don't think that always makes sense. But I really think that critics should do a, a much better job of just sort of putting their personal biases aside and trying to enjoy the movie and and, and see if it's entertaining enough on its merits. You know, I, uh, I used to work with John Nolte at Breitbart News and he just, you know, he just shared a fairly positive review of Don't Look Up, which is a very sort of left of center, you know, climate change style satire i didn't like it he did but john is very good if, if he enjoys the movie he'll 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 say so and i think a lot of critics are not going there I, I spoke to one producer kind of off the record and he his name is off the record and he said when he makes a movie because he worked in a in a, in a genre where it's more right of center he said if i get above a 50 percent rating on rotten tomatoes that's a success because yeah. because of the because of the genre i work in critics don't like me and my stuff and so if, if he can crack the 50% mark, which is a very mediocre rating, that's good because he knows that he's, he's, he's climbing uphill. And I think that's a shame, you know? Um, I, I, think, I think critics should really think about who, why they do what they do. It's not, you know, not to pat themselves on the back, but it's a reader's gonna read that and say, okay, should I waste two hours of my life on that movie and why? And I think we should, no matter whether you're left or right, that should be your focus. All right, final final topic for today, um, because I'm hoping to get you a lot more often in 2022 now that we're we're sort of free of schedules here. But uh, yeah. uh, looking ahead to the Oscars, uh, what? No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, go ahead. Yes. I'm oh sorry. yeah, yeah. I can see you're <laughs> very excited by this topic. I mean, um, what, what what should we expect to be at the top of the Oscar list this year, and just in terms of films? Yeah, I mean, I think we're looking at West Side Story, The Power of the Dog, Belfast. Uh, there could be some surprises there. I believe it's called Drive My Car is the Japanese um, international sort of um, film that's up for awards. I feel like that could be an underdog. I'm, I haven't, I got to screen it really soon, but I'm sort of hearing good things about that. Again, I don't think there are any real populist movies that would maybe would drink, bring a crowd. Um, and the one thing we, we haven't talked about, we should mention really briefly, the 2021 was a terrible year for films as far as more mature adult-minded fare at the box office. They all, almost all of them tanked. I think the House of Gucci actually did fairly well, but most of them were just really just disasters. Uh, the Last Duel, Respect in the Heights. West Side Story is a, is a mega bomb as far as from a financial point of view. And I think after two years of being, you know, pandemic out, I think most people, when they want to see a, a sophisticated movie, they want to do it at home. They don't yep. want the distractions. They're, they've been kind of weaned that they're going to watch most of the new stuff at home. And, you know, whether it's streaming or video on demand, they've been able to do that. And uh, so I, I think that's going to be really play a role in Hollywood moving forward. I think you're going to see a lot of movies just go on VOD right away. You know, a Ben Affleck drama, a George Clooney, you know, period piece. I think that's maybe the smart way to go right now. Make, maybe make more money. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Uh, Christian Toto, you can find him at Hollywood and Toto, at Hollywood and Toto on Twitter. Of course, hollywoodandtoto.com is where he is where he writes. And one more time, what's your book, Christian? It is Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul. And it's available for pre-order up until January 18th. And you can get the, the, the hard copy in your hands. But I'm told by my publisher that the pre-orders matter too. So if you are planning to buy it, I'd love it if you can uh, 
click that Amazon button sooner than later. Pre-orders do matter. I can say that as a as a one-time author myself. Uh -huh. The pre-orders make it make a big difference. So yes, get in there, get in early, get your pre-orders in for Virtue Bombs. You can find it at Amazon.com. Go to HollywoodandToto.com. Follow the links over there. Christian, thanks so much for being with us today. Always great to see you. Looking forward to more conversations like this in the coming year. All right. And your homework is to do more than four reviews this year. I will <sighs> I will hold you to that. I, I, I so much want to do that. So yes, I have homework, folks. This is my homework. I will get it done. <laughs> Christian, thanks so much. My pleasure. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. And the man you see on camera right now and uh, is Ted Balaker, filmmaker and author. He's author of the book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. He's also filmmaker behind Little Pink House and Can We Take a Joke? And I understand Ted, and Ted's a friend of mine from a while back too. I understand, Ted, that you're making a documentary based on your based on your book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Yeah, that's right. And I should say the, the book is by uh, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, but I'm I'm directing oh, the, the documentary. So. That's right. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I and I should I should know that because uh, I think I I think <laughs> I actually right, I right. think well I think I actually interviewed Greg about this. So I mean it's <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell him. <laughs> well, Hugh, I'm glad to hear that. Greg, of course, uh, does great work over at Fire and. Uh, and I know that you're a big fan of fire too. And uh, it's actually part of what we're going to talk about is a little bit about uh, the cancel culture, what cancel culture actually means, uh, how it manifests itself on college campuses and off of college campuses. And, you know, the, the big, I guess the big story in cancel culture so far uh, has been Dave Chappelle and how Dave Chappelle has basically beaten it down. But, you know, it's, it's a little bit more, uh, substantial and, and much, much broader than just Dave Chappelle. And, and over at, um, I think it's Persuasion is the name of the um, the website uh, where you have an essay on this. I thought you hit the nail on the head. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, um, you're definitely right about Dave Chappelle being kind of in the, in the middle of it all. And I've been getting um, kind of irritated about how people misrepresent what cancel culture is. Some people are you know, denying that it exists at all. Um, and what I point out in the persuasion essay is that cancel culture is not, I mean, yes, it does involve sometimes big names and they're getting canceled or, uh, or, or you know, being forced to apologize, but that's not really where the action is. Most, most of the action is uh, in, uh, you know, what's often called the chilling effect. So um, something happens to Dave Chappelle and everybody says, oh, well, look, he's still a rich guy. He's still going to have lots of fans. So therefore, cancel culture doesn't exist. And that's not that's not the way to look at it at all, because um, Dave Chappelle is at an elite level of fame and power. And I think it's very, I mean, only really not too many people other than Dave Chappelle could have taken the stand that he that he has taken and, and survived the way he has. So, you know, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of comedians. My brother's a stand-up comedian. And, you know, everybody not named Dave Chappelle is going to look at this dust-up in, involving the trans community and him and supposedly uh, anti-trans um, comedy. And, and they're not going to say, oh, now I can say anything I want. No, they're going to say, oh, my goodness, if, if this almost brought Dave Chappelle down, you know, it's going to just steamroll over me. Um, and we see that in, in every aspect, in, in lots of different aspects. And in, in the essay, I, I, I touch on 
some of the examples that I've been personally privy to. And a lot of the times the, these aren't things that are known uh, to the general public. They're, you could almost call it pre-canceling. There are cancellations that happen behind the scenes before anybody knows about it. You know, Ted, what it does is it sets up a, a series of incentives. And, um, it, and I think what, most of those incentives exist below the waterline. And I'm gonna just use the iceberg analogy here, right? You see, uh, if cancel culture is an iceberg, maybe only 10% of it's really visible above the line where you actually have public um, debates over this. Most of the rest of the time though, What's happening is that it's already chilling speech even before it has a chance to happen because of the incentives that this sets up. And you're right. I mean, Dave Chappelle is worth millions of dollars. He's getting millions and millions of dollars from Netflix. Good for him, by the way. I don't necessarily agree with Dave Chappelle's perspective on things, but he's honest and uh, he seems to have a lot of integrity. And there's a lot to root for in integrity, even if, you, even if you're disagreeing with people. And the issue is... <laughs> I think is that people don't recognize that anymore and the the entire point is shouting down opposite um opposite opinions from the uh from the public square and i i want to tie this into coddling of the american mind because i think that what this really is is it's sort of a a triumph of victimology over basic freedom of speech basic freedom of discourse um where victimhood is a trump card that shuts down everything else. It's a, it, it, and that is definitely a form of coddling. Yeah, I've been, um, I've been talking with, in preparation for uh, the coddling documentary, I've been talking with a lot of Gen Zers, so uh, people in their teens and 20s. And for them, um, cancel culture is kind of a way of life. Uh, they, I, I, they, they tell me stories about like going back on their Twitter feed and deleting anything that um, a grad uh, a grad school or a future employer might deem offensive. Um, FIRE has conducted a massive survey of, of uh, college students and, and have found that uh, self-censorship is, is widespread. And it's, uh, you know, as you might expect, uh, students are most likely to self-censor on, you know, big surprise uh, issues of race, sex, and so on. And that's those; those are kind of some of the sources of our some of our most intractable problems in society. And so, if we can't speak openly about problems and solutions, we have very little shot of actually improving. So, the cancel culture is not about Dave Chappelle. It's not about any one celebrity, any one person in the car in the crosshairs. It's really kind of stifling our ability to improve society, and that. That ultimately affects all of us. You mentioned, I mean, this is the, the Chappelle thing is almost a, a um, I, I don't want to say a replay, but it's almost a, a perfect example of some of the some of the themes that you covered in Can We Take a Joke? And again, these are all very similar. They're all very interrelated. Uh, but Can We Take a Joke was specifically about comedy. And it was specifically about the ability to engage in satirical observations of societal issues uh with the point of you know social criticism political criticism uh just basic free speech uh free speech that doesn't offend is not uh excuse me if you only apply free speech to speech that doesn't offend you're not really <laughs> it doesn't really mean much right 
Right. Yeah, exactly. You, by definition, you only have to protect the speech that's unpopular. So if you're saying something that's popular, there's no need uh, for for it to be defended. Uh, it's funny you, you mentioned, can we take a joke? And back then that was released in 2016. Um, Samuel Golden Films ended up being the distributor, but uh, my team and I had a difficult time at the time um, convincing distributors that this thing called, we didn't even call it cancel culture back then, it was outrage culture. Um, but it was, we had, it was quite a chore to explain to them that, no, this isn't just something that happens on a couple of crazy college campuses. This is something that's, that's affecting the broader community. And then flash forward to where we are today, um, not only have all the distributors and other kind of cultural gatekeepers realized that cancel culture is something that is far more than uh, something that's on college campus, but they're actually using cancel culture rules to curate their content. Uh, I mentioned in the essay, for instance, that we, my team and I had a meeting with, with one of the top distributors um, about uh, the coddling of the American mind documentary. They really liked our angle of focusing on the mental health crisis among Generation Z. But one executive piped up and said, uh, I don't know, you know, it would take just one journalist uh, to say, why did, why did uh, this company greenlight this project right after uh, George Floyd? And I was like, what? Like, coddling has nothing to do with George Floyd. Um, and moreover, how can one hypothetical Twitter user enjoy so much power? Uh, so that that's um, that's a good encapsulation of just in a period of about five or six years, how far we've come, or maybe how far we've fallen. So that cancel culture, mostly, you you gave the iceberg analogy, and I think it's a good one. Most of it is uh, below the waterline. You're, we're, most of us are not seeing. Uh, the 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 sorts of things that that I um, that, that I dealt with uh, uh, with these uh, distributors and other it's it's obviously not just them it's any almost every kind of cultural gatekeeper they know the rules of the game for cancel culture and so they're they're uh, they're programming accordingly. You know, I, I I guess I am a little mystified as to why anybody takes. Twitter that seriously or any other social media platform. I mean, <laughs> right. I, right. I mean, honestly, this is, uh, it's, it's the public square. If you had one guy standing in a street corner, uh, muttering to himself about, um, you know, Ted Balaker or Ed Morrissey or, or, or Dave Chappelle, nobody paying attention to uh, that person. Um, yeah. do you think that social media is really driving a lot of this? Do you think that it is an ampli is amplifying uh, voices to a unhealthy degree. Now, I'm not saying, uh, even apart from any sort of public policy that goes along with this, I'm not talking about public policy. I don't think anybody's platform should be shut down or regulated. In fact, far from it. But I mean, just as a societal issue and, and somebody who's watching the dynamics of cancel culture un, unfold, would it even be possible without Facebook, without especially without Twitter, I would say? Uh, well, you, in, in some sense, we've always had uh, outrage mobs, uh, you know, uh, people who wanted to burn heretics. But um, but what social media has done is really poured um, gasoline on the fire. So it's really supercharged outrage culture. It's supercharged cancel culture. So you can have outrage just, uh, you know, in a matter of, of uh, 
minutes just spread literally around the world. Um, back during uh, one of the stories uh, that we cover in Can We Take a Joke is this young lady who was on Twitter and had something like 190 Twitter followers. And she tweeted um, uh, something, let's see if I can remember it. I'm going to South Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Oh yeah, that and was uh, uh, Justine, right? Justine's, Justine, Justine Sack. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so she, um, so she tweets that nobody pays attention to her tweet. She she goes on this very long flight, uh, and then by the time she arrives in South Africa, she's the number one trending um, topic on Twitter. She's been fired from her job. Um, she's been um, slimed in the media. You, she has like. A, uh, news crews following her to the gym, you know, asking her why she's such a horrible person. And nobody actually stopped. And that's kind of the, the sort of the, the perils of those of us who aren't Dave Chappelle, like trying to be funny. She wasn't, uh, the, the Twitter mob thought she was being racist, but she was actually making, in her mind, um, a, a fairly woke comment about like how privileged she was, you know, being a white person. And on top of that, she used to live in South Africa and her parents actually moved her away from that country because they didn't want her to be around that kind of racist society. So she, she was being punished um, not only severely, but for something that was the opposite of her intended remarks. Yeah, um, I, I got to tell you, there was a period of time where I just simply would go sort of silent for a few hours before getting on airplanes. <laughs> just, so, <laughs> right. just so I didn't have to worry <laughs> right. about that. You right. know? <laughs> Get off the airplane. Not, not a bad idea. Not a bad check, idea. I'm checking my phone to see. Oh, right. <laughs> make sure I haven't done any. Make sure I haven't right. like killed my entire career here. I mean, right. but, but I mean, but I mean, and I'm I'm not I'm I'm actually not joking about that. I'm making light of it, but I'm not joking about that. That that was actually true for a while. I just had this sort of like this, you know, five hour silent, you know, uh, silent period before I would get on an airplane or be somehow unavailable. <laughs> but I mean. And I have a nice platform. I mean, I'm I'm more fortunate than 99% of other Americans. If if I am being attacked, I have a platform on which I can defend myself. I'm not Dave Chappelle by any stretch of the imagination, but I have the ability to fight back a little bit. Um, and fortunately, I haven't had to do that. But, um, you know, 99% of other Americans don't. And I think that's what you're getting at in, um, in, in your piece at Persuasion is that... Uh, you know, this has a tremendously chilling effect on people who just don't have any leverage over this type of social media onslaught. And so people just simply shut up. They just don't talk. They don't speak out. They don't speak their minds. And that's true in, you know, in smaller settings. It's true in larger settings. I know people who are parts of social groups who won't ever mention their politics because they know it's, they'll get shunned. And they don't want to be shunned. They kind of like to be around people. It's just this sort of impulse that it's it's just this impulse that we will not, it, I guess, sort of social uh, homogeneity or, 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 or political, uh, uh, you know, uh, epistemological closure, I think, was the um, was was the, the, the catchphrase several years ago. It's like we're imposing it on ourselves. Yeah, and um, to, and what's what I don't quite understand is that there really isn't a lot of there there. And what I mean is that um, I've been following the, the public opinion polls about 
cancel culture. And in the last, certainly in the last two years or so, it's pretty overwhelming that um, you and I are not in the minority. Mo most Americans uh, not only think cancel culture exists, but they're sick of it. Um, there was a recent poll that found even 70% of Democrats um, and, and, you know, are, are sick of cancel culture. Um, and, and it really belies a lot of the, the stereotypes that we have about different generations too, because in a separate poll, the, the generation that was uh, most likely to not like cancel culture was Gen Z. And we think of them as, as uh, you know, kind of maybe being the social justice activists who are pushing all of this. But if you look behind the curtain, it, it's pretty it's pretty clear why they would hate it so much. It's because it's really um, controlling so much of their lives. So what we what, what we end up seeing, and, and I've seen this in, in all the the 20 somethings I've been speaking with, I always ask them like what on campus, like what percentage of students do you think are really true believers and what percentage are just kind of going along for the ride? And invariably they say something like, you know, maybe 10, 20% are true believers and the vast majority aren't really on board, but they're, they're afraid to speak out. And so one of the, one of our hopes with the film is that we're, we're profiling, uh, 20 somethings who have, uh, some of them have gone into the deep into the woke mindset and then come out the other end. And they've realized that they're a lot happier now. They're a lot more effective. Like they can achieve the goals that they want to achieve. And they, they also, they're standing up so that other one, other people will have the courage to stand up too. And I think the more that people realize, um, that this is kind of, um, an emperor has no clothes situation where we're all looking around we're like the guy's got no clothes right and <laughs> you're not crazy like he really doesn't have any clothes and um everybody else realizes that this uh is a very pernicious phenom phenomenon and you're not alone i'm not alone like we we've got data now to, to support the poll after poll is is saying that um you know most americans have, are simply fed up with cancel culture so the fact that it persists in the media and that executives and so forth are, are, are still beholden to it, it's a little bit bizarre to me. It's, it's a little bit hard to figure out. Well, when do we know that, uh, I mean, do we know when uh, the, uh, the film version, the documentary, The Coddling of the American Mind will be coming out? Is this something we can look <laughs> forward to fairly soon? Or, or, or am I putting um, you on a spot? Am I, is, is this supposed to be something I, that- we're... I could say it's coming soon-ish. Um, <laughs> so- uh, well, uh, I don't like to make predictions at this point because so much of the distribution process is up to the, you know, whatever the distributors think is the right time, but I'm hoping that we can have it out by fall of next year. Excellent. All right. That's great. Um, by the way, I, I don't want to, uh, let you go without asking at least a little bit about Little Pink House. Fantastic sure. movie. You know, I was... I, I wrote about it at the time it came out. You and I, I think, did a couple of interviews about the movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, had a great cast. Um, I thought it was really super. Um, of course, it's an indie release. Those are always tricky. And um, I, I think it got quite a lot of attention at the time. Uh, what what has been the... Uh, what, have, what have the ripples been from that? For you, for... Um, uh, uh, for the people who were involved, I mean, uh, I'm sure you still hear about uh, Little Pink House because it was, you know, it, the Kilo decision and all that. Very obviously a, a fantastic um, 
topic for a for a uh, uh, scripted drama, and I I'm curious as to how much that is resonating for you and for the for the participants. Yeah, well, for me personally, and for my wife who who directed the movie, yep. um, uh, yeah, it's it's led to to uh, more opportunities. Um, Suzette, the the central figure, Suzette Kilo, we we've uh, we've actually become very good friends with her. Uh, she's a wonderful woman, um, and it's it was really great on a personal level to see someone who doesn't look for the camera, who's who's not looking to be uh, a celebrity, kind of get her due because she really stood up um, when when not a lot of people wanted to stand up. So she's she really likes the fact that her story has been told. Um, it's led. I'm, I'm proud to say it's led. It's helped um, facilitate some good. Uh, policy change in, in a number of states and a number of cities. Uh, we had a congressional screening, uh, which was the first time that's happened since um, a bipartisan congressional screening, which is the first time that's that's happened since uh, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. Um, so we had um, we we what we do with our films is we release them, but we also have impact campaigns um, uh, in conjunction with the general release. And so we're, we're looking to um, educate, to you know, change public opinion and, and so forth. And uh, we've been really, really pleased with, with the impact, both, um, uh, like I said, in, in terms of policy and education, uh, we, had, we, we were able to revise the film and provide it to, um, uh, to different uh, uh, facilities that, um, that uh, have like a video, uh, educational services for sure. high school kids. So something, you know, hundreds of thousands, probably millions now of uh, high school kids have, have learned from it too. So we, our, our goal is not, not just to have the film and then, you know, and then that's over and on to the next one. We really want to, as much as we can, uh, harness the power of Suzette's story to teach the next generation about the importance of property rights, the dangers of, of, um, of cronyism and of government overreach. Um, and, you know, Suzette's story is such a compelling story. You just have to kind of tell it the way it happened and just get out of the way and people really react to it. Well, I also think too, I mean, uh, your, your wife, Courtney, did a great job in telling this story. Catherine Keener, of course, is Suzette Kilo, Jean Triplehorn is Charlotte Wells in the film. I mean, those are, those are, you know, superb actors. Those those two women are superb actors, and a very different role for both of them. And and I thought that they, I, I thought it really worked on screen. I was such a big fan of this. I'm still such a big fan of this film. <laughs> uh, and uh, and and I'm glad to hear that it's it's still it's still got an audience. It's still attracting audiences. And I think that the 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 unfortunate uh, teaching experience of Kilo. <laughs> Is, right. is 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 a, a cautionary tale that each generation is going to have to learn and and deal with you know government overreach in that manner and uh, it's a it's a great way to do it so I, I you can do lectures all day long and lots of people do lectures all day long on this stuff right. if you want to see what if you want to see what an abuse of eminent domain is like watch little pink house because it's a true story <laughs> it really happened and um, and it was a disaster. It turned out to be a disaster for the community too, because in yeah. the end, in the end, the, the land never went to any use. 
Exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's so infuriating. And and I'll underline the true story aspect. I, you know, being a filmmaker who is uh, not in step with most of Hollywood, I I um, bristle when I see usually see like the based on a true story <laughs> at the beginning of a of a movie because it's just you know what's coming it, it, unless unless you really know the story, it's going to be bent toward a particular direction most of the time. And uh, Courtney and I really wanted this uh, story to be told as it happened. And that, you know, of course you have to take some artistic liberties. You know, sometimes you're not privy to every conversation that happened, but so much of it is, is as it really happened, even down to the, to the Supreme Court scene, like those are the actual words of the actual attorneys. So it, um, it really is very, very close to, uh, to the actual story, you know, compressed into about a hundred minutes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Again, I mean, these are, it's drama. So you have to compress things. You have to squeeze, you have to combine characters and all that kind of stuff. It's the story though, that has to be true. And I agree with you. Usually when I see based on a true story, what's even worse is inspired by a true story. Oh yeah. <laughs> inspired by a true story. <laughs> Sometimes you get a reimagining. It's like, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that means that means nothing that's going to unfold here actually happened, but uh, except in somebody's imagination. Um, yeah. So, uh, but no, Little Pink House definitely. If you haven't seen it yet, I, I couldn't recommend it strongly enough. Ted Balaker, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, looking forward to the to the, uh, to the film, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, as soon as it comes out, whenever that happens to be. Thanks, Ed. It's always a pleasure to speak with you.